Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 20th of November 2022, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking on Things Jesus Came to Bring Us, Unity. Well, these days we don't really have that much experience of what's now coming up on the screen, darkness, do we? We don't have that much experience of total darkness. You see, we've got things like instant electric lighting within our homes whenever we want it. I think it's coming up now, isn't it? Some pictures of lighting. There you go. And we've got down our streets, not darkness normally, but lighting so that we can see the way. What that means is that the experience of having to endure darkness without being able to do anything about it is pretty rare. It's only on those occasions when we might suddenly have a power cut that we experience that sort of darkness. And it's then that we see how important light is. Darkness stops us seeing things that we need to see, doesn't it? Darkness confuses us. We don't really know where we are. Darkness provides plenty of opportunity for accidents. And darkness basically stops us being able to live in anything like a normal manner. And that's why the Bible so often reaches for darkness as a metaphor to convey what it means to live without reference to God. The God of the Bible is our creator, isn't he? And it's that that lies at the basis of the assertion that life can only come from him. He is the sole source of life. It can't come from anywhere else. Live our lives, therefore, in reference to this God, the Bible says, and we continue being plugged into that source of life. It keeps flowing into us. It keeps being pumped into our lives, as it were. Live without reference to God, on the other hand, and the result, according to the Bible, is the opposite of life, namely death. Not instantly, of course, but a path of diminished existence that inevitably leads in that direction. Why? Because we've cut ourselves off from the only source of life. And as I say, in spelling this out, the Bible makes a great deal of the use of these two images of light and darkness. Life without God, like darkness, stops us seeing things that we need to see. Life without God, like darkness, confuses us. It provides plenty of opportunities for accidents, and it basically stops us being able to live in anything like the normal manner. But it actually goes further than this. Live in darkness rather than in the light of God, and the result, whether we realise it or not, according to the Bible, is actually a creeping death because we're cutting ourselves off from those who's, uh, from the life-giving rays of that light that are meant to sustain us. So it's a bit like a plant that's kept in darkness. If you took one of your prized plants and you placed it in darkness, even if you watered it, it would basically wither, because light is as important to its life as water. It will basically wither and die. But live, on the other hand, in reference to the light of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And we're not only able to see more clearly the things we need to see, 
We're not only able to avoid confusion and so many of the accidents that, we'd other, that would otherwise come our way, but more positively, live in the light of God and we continue to grow in all the ways that we're meant to. We continue to grow, in the words of the strapline of Christchurch School, in becoming the people God made us to be. And that's what the Christian life is all about. The Christian life is all about trying to walk in the light of God that he revealed in Jesus Christ, because that alone can bring us life. That alone can bring us life in all its fullness that Jesus said he came to bring us. And according to that letter of John that we heard earlier, read to us by John, not the one who wrote it incidentally, it's not, his, uh, not within his range of talents to write letters in the Bible. Probably is, but he hasn't had a go at it yet. There are several things that that will mean. Walking in the light means acknowledging our sinfulness. Walking in the light means acknowledging the amount of stuff in our lives that's shown up by that light and shows that those lives fall short of God's perfect will for them. Now that's not as negative as it might at first sound because it's the root, of course, to those sins being forgiven as we had earlier in this service and then the opportunity for God's spirit to come and live within us so that more and more of our lives can receive that light and life that comes from God. It does involve hard work rather than simply coming naturally. <clears throat> Excuse me. If we claim to be in fellowship or partnership with God, John says, we need to make the conscious decision to walk in that light rather than walking in darkness. It's a daily decision. It's a daily act of will. And of course, it has got lots of implications for the decisions that we then take. But one of the most important of those decisions, and the one that I want to focus on this morning, is the active decision to love those who share our faith in Jesus Christ. It does go beyond just those people, but we're going to particularly focus on that this morning. Because that's the substance of that passage that we had earlier. Here are its words, against the background of light. Whoever loves his brother or sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. But it continues, but whoever hates his brother or sister is in the darkness. He, she doesn't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. What do we make of that when we read it? Perhaps we don't regard it as that tricky, particularly if we're not conscious of actually hating anyone. I think a number of us here will probably say that. We'll probably think, well, I can't think of anyone that I particularly hate. But before we let ourselves off the hook too quickly, we need to remember that throughout this letter, John, its writer, is drawing very stark contrasts with no safe middle ground. It's deliberately written very starkly to challenge us. People, according to this letter, as I said earlier, are either invested in life and all that it means, or they're investing in death. And whatever they might think, they are either living in light or they're living in darkness. And the same is actually true when it comes to love and hate. We're either doing one or we're doing the other. You see, love in the Bible isn't a feeling 
or emotion, so much as practical and sacrificial acts of self-giving to others. And the reason why love is presented as the greatest virtue of all is because the God from whom all life comes is described as being love. God isn't just described as doing love particularly well. God is described as actually being love. And it's from there that it should start making a bit more sense to us because what we know already, if we think about it, is that love and life are completely entwined. They belong completely together. We see it all the time if our eyes are open to it. We see people feeling more alive than ever when they're either in love or they're being loved by someone or they're able to show love to someone else. We all know this from our experience. There is an intrinsic connection between love and life. Now, we're not just talking about romantic relationships when we say this. We're talking about deep friendships. If you have a really deep friendship with someone, a really strong bond of love, you know how life-giving that is. We see it all the time with parents with newborn children, but also grandparents with children, uncles and aunts and so on. When we see that love happening, they feel more alive than ever before. That's, just, that's not just emotion or psychology, that's actually reality. Love, even in the flawed and fitful ways in which we as human beings very often display it, love is unique in its ability to bring life, isn't it? Love somehow possesses a power to bring transformation and healing and start undoing the most savage hurts and pain. I preach at a lot of funerals, and one of the things that I often say at funerals, because it does seem to really resonate with people, even if they have no Christian background whatsoever, is the extent to which love punches above its weight. What I'll often say to people at a funeral is they can be having a horrendous time. They can be having the most dreadful time. Everything can be going wrong. They can be really hurt and upset. And someone does something really quite small. They do some act of love, which is really quite, you know, logically shouldn't particularly make a difference, but it does. A neighbour who drops in a meal or drops in with a card or says a kind word. Love has this mysterious power to punch above its weight. And that's because I believe it comes from God and it's intrinsically connected it displays to the fullest amount possible that life that only comes from God see that's the Christian explanation of this all love ultimately comes from the God who alone can give life and we know this negatively as well children or indeed adults who haven't received enough love they don't grow as they should do they their emotional growth becomes stunted. And once we receive the life-giving power of love, we realise that it's not an exaggeration to say that not to love is to hate. Because when we refuse to love others, we're cutting them off from the source of life. That's why love is the definitive sign of those who belong to God. 
That's why love is the definitive sign of his life and light within them. God is love, according to the Bible. And if his life and his light are within us, then we will be people who love as well. And not simply our nearest and dearest. The really distinctive thing about Christianity is meant to be the love that's displayed towards people who aren't members of our natural families or those who are within our natural friendship groups, the sort of people that we get on with anyway. Because it's that love that's really radical. It's that love that goes beyond the boundaries with which people normally display care and practical help. It's that sort of love that is really radical, life-giving, and therefore transforming. It's the sort of love that also makes the most impact upon a watching world. Back in 1997, a sociologist called Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. It's rather different from uh, works before. Because he was a sociologist, he had a rather different approach from that taken certainly by theologians, but also by historians. Uh, And it's a remarkable book. And Rodney Stark analysed why this new movement, new movement called Christianity, He analysed why it grew so rapidly from the first century onwards. It is quite a phenomena that needs to be explained. And one of the most striking passages within Stark's book is his description of how Christians in ancient Turkey would react when their town was struck by plague. What would happen when plague struck these towns in Turkey was that the rich and the well-to-do, including the doctors, would gather up their family and their possessions and they'd leave town. Very sensible, you might think. They'd flee to the hills to fresher and less polluted air or to friends or family some distance away. Of course, a lot of people couldn't particularly do that, but certain people, if they were able, did so. But the Christians in those towns, Stark managed to establish, often amongst the poorest in those populations, and many of them slaves, They would stay. Why would they stay? They'd stay specifically to nurse people who had plague. And that included a number of those who were neither Christians, nor their family members, nor in any way connected with them. Sometimes those who were ill would, as a result of this care, get get well, because not all diseases were fatal. The care would have uh, a remedial effect. And sometimes, of course, the Christians themselves would catch the disease and they would die. But either way, the point was graphically and irresistibly being made to the world that a new way of being a human being had arrived. No one before this had ever thought of living this way. But the world was now seeing that a new way of living had arrived. The world was now seeing a demonstration of the truth that a love had arrived in the world that could bring life to its fullest extent. And a rock-solid example as well of people who believed that unless they chose to actively love those beyond their nearest and dearest and treat them as their brothers and sisters, they weren't walking in the light that they claimed to have received. 
It demonstrated, like nothing else could, the authenticity of what these people claimed to believe. They were putting their money or their actions where their mouth was. And this, according to Rodney Stark, is a huge part of the answer to why Christianity grew so quickly. A movement had arrived demonstrating more powerfully than anyone could imagine was possible how love and life belong totally together. And it was really irresistible to many, many people. And it's that sort of amazing community of love, that amazing community of unity, that Jesus came to make possible because of the way in which his death on the cross has set us free from the power of evil. That's where those verses at the end of the passage we had read come in. As John encourages his readers, and he deliberately tries to cover the diversity within the people he's speaking to, those who are older, those who are younger, and those in between, John encourages his readers to realise that the challenge to live this way is something that's possible. It's possible as a result of what Jesus has done. Evil's been defeated. Forgiveness has been received. They're in relationship with God, who's the source of life. And they have, because they're joined to Jesus, overcome the evil one. Let's look at part of those words now. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers. I know it's all very uninclusive language. Fathers and mothers, because you know him who is from the beginning. That means you're joined to the creator God, the sole source of life. I'm writing to you, young men and women, because you've overcome the evil one. It's all a very big statement of the fact that evil has been defeated, its power has been taken away, and so you really can live in this way. This is the underlying logic that makes possible the stuff that has come earlier. Now, it is a massive challenge, isn't it? I've spoken a lot about unity at Christchurch over the years, and very often I've used the statement from Paul's letter to the Galatians as its basis. This is what it says. Some of you will recognise this, because I quote it quite often. Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. It's a tremendous statement of Christian unity but it's the commitment to genuine self-giving love, which Paul also talks about, most obviously in that famous passage, 1 Corinthians 13, the one often read at weddings. It's love that means such unity will move beyond the merely theoretical to something that's genuine and transforming. Jesus came to bring everyone who belongs to him into one family, into the big family of God, as we sung earlier where everyone has equal status in him. That's the blessing of Christian unity, but of course it brings a challenge with it as well. The challenge that comes with it, that wonderful blessing of unity, that wonderful statement that we're all equal before God, the challenge that comes with it is the calling to express that unity in meaningful and sacrificial acts of love. Acts of love for one another that powerfully display the light and the life that Jesus brought to us. So where might that challenge be specifically for us? Perhaps there's a need 
of someone else in this church that you're aware of. God might have made you especially aware of that need because he wants you to be part of doing something about it. Where might God be calling you to make a difference to the life of someone else? Not exclusively within this community, but it is worth thinking about this community and the fact that God has called us to be a family. Where might there be an area of need that you're aware of or growing aware of where God might be calling you to be the one or one of the people to make a difference through some act of sacrificial service. Now it might be, and it will be particularly authentic, if it's someone you don't know that well. There might be other people in this church that you don't really know that well, but you are aware there's some sort of need that they have. It might be someone who really couldn't be more different from you, someone who likes feeding ducks rather than reading books, or the other way around, or any of those differences that we sung about earlier. It might be someone that you see yourself as having really hardly anything in common with. You're very, very different. Someone of a very different age or background, or so on. But just like those early Christians during those times of plague, those amazing Christians in Turkey with their sacrificial acts of love Just like those situations, it's precisely when we respond to such a situation of need with practical acts of love that we most display to them, to ourselves, and to a watching world that the light and the love of God is truly within us. That's why we finish this series with the last of these sermons on unity. We thought about various things that Jesus came to bring us. One of the most wonderful is that we're called to be part of one family. That's what we're meant to be, brothers and sisters together in one family. It's a wonderful blessing. It's a fantastic status that God gives us. It's deeply affirming. I'm fortunate enough to have come from a family background where I received a lot of love and care and support as I grew up. Not everyone is so fortunate. But whatever our backgrounds in terms of family, whatever the ups and downs, the joys, but also the tragedies that we've experienced, God calls us into one single family as brothers and sisters. That is a wonderful blessing, but I've really focused this morning more on the challenge that comes with that unity. It's a calling and a challenge that centres upon embodying God's love. If we believe that all life comes from God, the Creator, if we believe that the foremost sign of that life that comes from God is love, if we, however partially and fitfully in our lives, have made that connection between the power of love and real life being experienced, then we can bring all that together in responding to this challenge thinking of ways in which we are being called by God, quite specifically, because it's a general challenge to us all, but God does, I believe, call us as well individually by presenting opportunities to us, by making us aware of needs within our community that we can respond to. And just like with the early Christians, 
the impact on this will be huge. We don't really do it for this reason. It's just a byproduct of it. When a church can be a genuine loving place, when people can join a church and from really the word go, they experience a love and a welcome that doesn't just stay at the surface level of smiles and warmth and handshakes and backslapping, but becomes really meaningful when it comes to situations that people are finding difficult, when acts of love are received, then a church then really takes off and people are attracted to it because it makes a difference to their lives. So things Jesus came to bring us, unity, a wonderful blessing, a wonderful privilege, but a real challenge as well. The real challenge to think of practical, meaningful ways in which we can be sacrificial in displaying the transforming, life-giving love of God. We're going to turn to prayer. Let's pray. We ask that you would speak to us right now and challenge us gently and lovingly, but challenge us in the area where we can respond to this. Let's have a moment of quiet now where we just ponder what we've heard and consider where God might be calling us to make a difference. There might be one particular person within this church that God places on our heart and asks us to be part of making a difference through our love. Let's uh, have some silence now as we consider that. <coughs> 